From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of Goal Own Goal with me and the human own goal himself, Roger Mitchell. Mate, <laughs> how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm very good. It's, as I've said before, it's very, very warm here, but the serving up of sports that we're getting these days is keeping me a little bit happy. But that's not where I wanted to start, mate. I wanted to start with something that I know you've been talking about a lot. And it's important to sport. The, the reason it's important to sport is I believe that the whole meme culture that is so critical to how sport engages now uh, is through Twitter. So I'd, I'd like you to bask in a little bit of glory, my friend, and tell no, us... No, I'm not very good at that. What, and I know you're not. So that's why I'm bringing it up, because you never would have. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's happened with Elon, and, you know, because you pretty much called this from the start. What happened, Grant? Ugh, do I really have to talk about this man again? Um, I know, no, right. serious, uh, because where, what is the future for Twitter now? Well, look, I actually spent an hour on the phone with a friend of mine who really does understand this stuff uh, on Friday afternoon after this happened. And um, it's very interesting. You know, there's an awful lot of hot takes on this, Rog, on Twitter about, oh, well, Elon will pay a billion dollars and walk away or Twitter will compromise and they'll all shake hands and walk away. It, it, It really isn't that simple. So to try and walk a fine line between being too wonky and being but is too, he out? Is, um, is, is, he, is he is there no chance of him owning this now? Let's start there. Simply, no, quite the opposite. There is a very strong chance that he could be forced to buy it at the price that he's agreed, fifty four dollars and twenty cents. Even though it's trading, I think below thirty, it closed on on Friday. And the reason for that is there's a clause called specific performance in the contract that he signed. He signed a legal document that basically commits him to buying the company at the price he's agreed subject to a material adverse effects clause which I'm sure you know all about yeah but he's tried very desperately to make it about the bots when yeah. he you know saying oh there's more than five percent bots is what he first said but you know he's kind of checkmated himself there because the initial reason he gave for buying it was to fix the bot issue so he can't say that he was unaware that there were bots on Twitter He's saying he's not happy with the information he's being got. It's all, you know, Musk says this, Musk says that. Ultimately, when he backed out on Friday and said that he was basically pulling the bid, the Twitter chairman, Taylor, went on Twitter and said, we're going to sue him to complete the deal as promised. Now, it sounds ridiculous that anyone could be forced to pay $44 billion for a company if they don't want it, but Musk being Musk, he didn't do any due diligence on this. He waived his right to due diligence. And he signed a contract that includes a specific performance clause. And that compels him to perform as he promised, say, subject to very stringent problems. Now, if it goes to court, this will be tried in the Delaware Court of Chancery. And Delaware is the number one state in America for incorporating companies. Yeah, yeah. And Delaware law is very much geared towards making people want to open companies in Delaware because they, they feel they'll be given a fair shake and... Uh, you know, legal matters and matters of contract will be handled correctly. 
And so if Twitter sue him to complete the deal, he will fight it, obviously, because he's Elon Musk, and it will likely end up in court. This court has a habit of fast-tracking all these kinds of cases simply for this reason. I spoke to a friend of mine, as I said, who was absolutely mustered on this, and he spent a year in a big case similar to this, working for a big company, which I won't name, a very big company, and his company tried to back out of a deal and were forced to complete the purchase at an insanely high price that essentially destroyed their balance sheet. So ultimately, it's not a case of Musk simply saying, oh, I'm not going to do it, and then worst case, he pays a billion-dollar break fee and walks away. It's not that simple. Now, what's going to be really interesting, Rog, is there's a real sense that power and money are all you need in America these days and the whole system's crooked and Musk is so rich and so powerful that he'll walk. And, you know, in in most other instances, I would have just depressingly assumed that to be the same. I think this may be different. I think it may be different. I think his power and his money may not be enough to get him off this. Now, we could talk about the Silicon Valley bros making a deal and him talking to the Twitter guys and them coming to an agreement. But if the Twitter board don't follow through with this merger, they leave themselves open to personal lawsuits for you know not being good fiduciaries of shareholder interests. So there's a lot to this, but it really isn't a case of Musk says he doesn't want to buy the company, therefore he doesn't buy the company. And worst case, they can force him to pay a billion dollars to walk but, away. But Grant, help me a little bit. I mean, did he ever want this in the first place? The re- because it's all tied into this world of cult personality that I keep talking about in sport as well and narrative. And what's, what's Musk's story with Twitter? Was it just a way to sell his Tesla shares or what? No, Roger, look, he's a narcissistic man-child is what he is. And he loves attention. And he loves, you know, being the cool kid when he isn't. And he, he loves the attention. And he just, you know, look, he, he, he was probably drinking on a Friday night and made some stupid comment like he did when he said he was taking Tesla private and then kind of got carried away with it and doesn't have anyone around him to say, don't be an idiot, back off. I don't think he ever wanted to buy it. I don't think he ever thought he would have to buy it. I don't think he wants to buy it. But that doesn't mean I don't think he will have to buy it. So we'll see. I mean, it'll be really interesting. The, The one chance he's got to engineer this the way he wants it is to persuade the banks who've offered to do the financing to pull the financing. That's the only real obvious and clear way that he can back away from this, is if the financing doesn't come together, then he will probably be able to walk and maybe pay that billion-dollar break fee, I'm not sure. But So it wouldn't surprise me if he has a few words with the bankers at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and says, hey, guys, how about you tell me that you're not prepared to loan me the money anymore and I can get out of it that way. We'll see. I mean, like I said, he will do anything he can to get out of doing it. I'd love to see him forced to buy it. It would be quite the turn up for the books. But it's definitely not a case of he said he doesn't want it anymore, therefore he won't end up buying it. Yeah. Grant, like I say, I think I think all these things are important as sport and finance become more and more intertwined. And I'm, and I'm going to bring on a, a tweet here that I saw from your friend, Julian Brigden, you may not have seen this. Julian Brigden, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the most astute and experienced 
analysts and reporters and and uh, his kind of research is sold to big, big funds and institutions and everything like that for a lot of money. He came out with this tweet, Grant, that said this, I'm quoting now, CalPERS unloads record $6 billion of private equity at a discount. If you are looking for a black swan, it's in private equity. Did you see that tweet? I did, actually. Yes, I did see that tweet. Now, I think we were one of the first podcasts to start talking about uh, VCs and private equity and big finance coming into sport. And I'd like to think here we can maybe be one of the first to talk about the reversal of that trend. Because I saw that and it stopped me in my tracks. Private equity has put a very serious bid under sport for the last five years. They, outside of sport, kind of like cover a lot of the things they get wrong by selling between themselves. I think that's called secondary selling between private. What that means is that they sell the companies they've got to each other. It's a little bit like, you know, the the football clubs and, and the fake capital gains when, you know, they do a swap deal and they say that the values are, yeah. oh, do you know, it's very similar, Grant. So, you know, what I want to ask you is when Julian says, uh, maybe I should explain. Calpers is one of the biggest pension funds in the world. It's California's public employees, and public I think it's got about system. Yeah. it's got about half a trillion dollars under management. So these are big, big players, and they are unloading their holdings in private equity at a discount. And that means they are rushing to the exits. How do you interpret that, Grant? And what do you think it means for the CVCs of the world, the 777s and the Arctosses, who have, as I say, put a very significant bid under sport in the last five years? Look, Roger, it's not nothing, is, is the simple answer. It's a huge red flag. I mean, I wouldn't even want to guess at the amount of private equity money that's sitting in the pension plans right across the United States and worldwide, because obviously they've been forced into these sort of places, these illiquid places, to try and get the yield they need. You know, most of them have 7% annual return assumptions for all their pensions. They haven't got anywhere near that in anything safe recently. It's all been capital gains. So whilst a lot of them are probably keeping up with that 7% return, Roger, it's not through bond-like instruments and coupon. So they've been forced into places like private equity, which obviously have massive liquidity issues. So you know, if you think about this, if they've dumped that kind of money in private equity at a discount, obviously they're desperate to get out. But by the same token, there's obviously someone willing to buy it at a discount. So it's not that there aren't buyers there, there aren't people that see value. There's a timing mismatch, obviously, with the boomer generation retiring now every day, having a lot of stuff tied up in private equity when the biggest generation you have are looking to take money out of their pensions. Um, Private equity is not perhaps the most sensible thing to be in, They're obviously being spooked by the market. They're spooked by rising rates. Uh, All the reasons that you would imagine. So it's definitely a canary in a coal mine of sorts. What it means yet, I don't know. If it starts to become, quote-unquote, a thing, then it's a very serious problem because I suspect, given what's happened in private equity the last 10 years or so, if it turns into something people want to sell, there is way more looking to get out than we'll be wanting to get in at anywhere near market levels. Um, so we'll see. You know, it's just it's just another example of the unwind of what we've seen going on in the world of financial markets for the last ten years. You know, the zero cost of capital thing. You and I have spoken about it many many times before. It, it, at some point, it was always 
going to reverse, and when it did reverse, it was going to change everything. So yeah, everything we're seeing is the beginning of that, Rog, the beginning of higher interest rates, the beginning of selling rather than buying. It's all starting to happen, and where it goes potentially for sport with private equity because everything is so illiquid remains to be seen. But if the turn is genuine and this becomes a trend rather than a blip, then it's a significant problem for sport. No two ways about it. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, if, if you look at two, two sports at least, well, first of all, we should explain that where does private equity get its money? People maybe don't know that. There are things called LPs, limited partners, which are basically these kind of pension funds and insurance companies and big institutions that decide to give the fund managers, uh, let's use a name, CVC, uh, the trust to take their money and invest it appropriately for, as you say, that amount of return. The LPs are the ultimate funders of private equity, CalPERS being one of the biggest ones. So if you look at a couple of sports now that... Uh, all of us and Roger, I think, I think one thing that's important to add is these investments are tied up for long periods of time. They're not liquid. So you, you, know, you put these in, it'll be a six-year private equity fund or a four-year private equity fund. And the idea is you put the money in and at the end of the fund's life, they unwind the assets and you, you make your profit then. So there's no daily liquidity on these things. So uh, on that, where is CalPERS unloading uh, $6 billion at a discount to? Where is well, it going to? Presumably, they're going to the other LPs and saying, we want out. And the other LPs are, you know, passing a hat round. And, uh, you know, I haven't read the details of the story, so I don't know. But I, it, the most likely people would be the other LPs who also have money invested in this and don't want to see a fire sale are probably going around and saying, well, look, you know, you want out, we'll bid you down 20% and we'll we'll take it all amongst ourselves. You know, this is not, there's not a bid they can hit. There's not a... No, no I get that. I just want people to, to, to understand... And, yeah. and think a little bit about the dynamics. This is the start, potentially, of the race to the exits. And, you know, if you think of a couple of sports um, today, one would be rugby and the idea that CVC would buy various parts of various rights holders, knock heads together and, and come up with some future. Ditto with what people are talking about, tennis. And everybody in sport is thinking that that's going to be a trend to, maybe in a good way, create a little bit of the disruption that's needed in the industry to move to, say, for example, a more you know B2C model. This isn't good news. This isn't good news for the industry where one of the biggest financiers and hopes for a better future are all of a sudden seeing their investors r- racing to the exits. I'd love to have CVC and Nick Clary on our podcast because he doesn't do any interviews that I've heard of. Uh, very, very reserved, fair enough. But I would suggest that if guys like you and me are starting to talk about the way we are in the, the, the last 10 minutes and we start seeing things like, well, you know, I wonder if CVC's underlying sports assets have been marked to market, I think he should probably come on and educate us a little bit about how we've got it wrong. That's why I thought this was um, one of the biggest stories of the week, Grant. Yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong, Rog. And the mark-to-market thing, look, one of the beauties of private equity in many ways is there is no market, right? Now, if this transaction takes place, technically speaking, everyone else should be marking their holdings to where the last traded price was. It's unlikely they'll do that, but 
you know, it's what they should do. But this is potentially a huge, huge problem for the world of sport because there has been, as you said, and we've, we've chronicled it week in, week out, the amount of private equity money coming into sport, Raj. And we've also talked about how if, if the direction of interest rates changes, it first of all turns the tap off for, for private equity money if they can't borrow this money at zero cost, essentially. It makes the hurdles that much harder. If the cost of capital is higher, it makes the returns they need to get need to be much higher. And it, it discourages people from investing in private equity funds. So there is a problem staring them in the face. It remains to be seen whether central banks keep pushing rates higher or they're forced to blink and backtrack. But um, for the time being, you want to be liquid right now. And private equity is the antithesis of that. Well, th- this is the point. Let me throw a couple of headlines that I saw exactly on this theme this week that will get your juices flowing. One of them was exactly private equity deal. Barcelona has agreed to sell a 10% stake in their La Liga TV rights for the next 25 years to US private equity group 6th Street for 208 million euros. Now, okay, but why am I talking about that headline? Because the day before, I saw this headline. Bayern Munich will not take an instalment deal for Lewandowski to go to Barcelona because they, quote, don't believe Barcelona will be around in two years' time. I mean, think about all these things together, Grant. I don't think people are joining the dots here. There's no, been no a, of course not. There's been a lot of, I would say, over-exuberance uh, from the private equity companies, a lot of them in America, who have seen sport as an uncorrelated asset, an asset that was in, in European terms undervalued compared to American valuations. Uh, the dollar has been much stronger, so the European assets have looked cheaper again. I saw Julian Brigden's quote and that tweet there, and a shiver went down my back, Grant, and I'm calling a top. I think yeah. this is the top. Yeah, well, look, you could be right. We've flagged it was coming for a while now, and and I, I think we talked about this. What try to kind of impress upon people the difference that inflation makes in terms of what has to be done with interest rates, and you know, if interest rates, they don't even have to go up, Rog. They just have to stop being promised to be low for five years, like they have been, right? If there is a chance they can go up, it changes all the calculations. Uh, you know, what the central banks have tried to do is convince everybody to invest as though they will not be raising rates for years because that's how you encourage people to go out and borrow. If you, if you think you're going to be able to roll this stuff over for the next three, four, five years, it's great. You know, the Australian central bank just did an about turn, having said that they were going to yep. keep rates low till yep. 2024. They raised rates and then went on national TV and apologised, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I know we said that, but no, events have got ahead of us. It changes everything. And um, as I say, I think we've spoken about this a lot. I think we're clear about what difference this makes. So it's, it's quite useful to have these kind of examples and see what a difference it makes so early in the piece if the mentality has just turned and Bayern Munich are already saying things like that and CalPERS already divested themselves as quick as they can. It shows you how big a deal this really is. I think so. And honestly, Nick Cleary, if you're listening... Um, have a look at our previous shows. It's not in private equity's interests to 
have guys like Grant and I that come from the finance industry start to speculate the way we have in the last 15 minutes. So, Nick, come on, are you not entertained? And tell us um, tell us what the reality is. Here, here, Ross, that would be great. Well, listen, let's, um, let's spend a bit of time talking about sport, what do you say? No, and, but that uh, was sport for me, the whole thing. Well, you I, know, know, I know, I know, I know. But I mean the... But no, but you were going to tell me um, off air. You, 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 this, this was your own goal. It was the Blatter Platini getting off? Tell us a little bit of your views on that, Rog. I mean, look, what, what do you want me to say? Right? I think anyone that's watched this stuff for any length of time, we all kind of felt there would be a deal done, and they'd somehow get themselves off. I mean, I, honestly, Rog, I don't even know what to say other than I'm shocked, but not surprised. If that makes any sense at all. And you, you look. You followed FIFA. You followed UEFA. You've dealt with these people much more than I have. It's amazing to me that once again, Blatter skates free, and you know it wouldn't surprise me to see him running for the head of FIFA again, Rog. Frankly, well, let me take a couple of quotes that came out after the the their acquittal came out, Grant, because you asked me a couple of weeks ago what I thought about that, and I kind of like said, you know, I'll give you the whole real politique line about, you know, if you go into these roles, you need to understand what you're getting into. So both of them come out after being acquitted in that centre of world power called Bellinzona in Switzerland, which I can tell you, it's a couple of couple of clicks up the road from me. It's not the centre of the world, you know? But that's where yeah. the, the, the case was tri- tried. So Platini comes out and, as they say in Italian, he removed a couple of small pebbles from his shoe and threw them at Infantino. The guilty people weren't in this courtroom today during the trial, but you can count on me, I will get them. So if you if you remember, he was about to become president of FIFA. This thing came up. Yeah, he had yeah. to step down and his bagman Infantino said, I'll take your place. So um, Michel Platini doesn't sound as if he's a guy that's going to just let that one go. But the more interesting one, and this really is amazing, you know, Seth Blatter, uh, his quote was, I'm happy. I think the world of football will also be happy because for so many years, Michel and myself, we have been the great thought leaders in our world and our family of football. I mean, what the fuck is wrong with this guy, Grant? I mean, I'm not saying he's dishonest, right? I, I, I'm, I'm prepared to not have an opinion on that, but he's completely delusional. Yeah, I mean, look, Roger, we're going back to we're going back to Musk. Saying it's the same thing, right? That, yeah, that's why I wanted get to start these... with Musk. Yeah. The people you get in these positions, generally speaking, have a very warped perspective on their own self-importance, their own abilities, and by extension, how they're viewed by others around them. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, like Musk, I'm sure Blatter was surrounded by sycophants during his FIFA days, and everyone, I'm sure, all he ever heard was how great he was and, you know, what a fantastic job he was doing, et cetera, et cetera, and... He probably does believe it, Roger. I mean, I, I doubt he spends much time chit-chatting with football fans and asking them what they think of the job he did while at FIFA. But I think if he did, he'd, he'd be in for a rude awakening. Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all. I think you know that. However, I think the decision they made, as Andrew Croker said, the one that shook the world, the Qatar World Cup decision, 
I think that's starting to heat up now. I saw with interest the decision by Watford to cancel the friendly, I think, with the national team of Qatar, mainly through fan pressure. So I sit here, what, we're five months out now, six months out, and I still believe that there's significant, what I would call, systematic risk with this World Cup that they are underestimating. I'm not sure how smooth it's going to go, Grant. I agree 100%. I think it's going to be potentially an absolute debacle, Rog, for for so many reasons, right? We know it's just got this air of corruption all over it. I mean, as bad as Russia was getting the 18 World Cup, this was even worse, particularly as, you know, the initial story was, oh, it'll still be held in June, July, we're not going to change it all. And everyone said, well, what are you talking about? There's no way you better hold it in June, July. Hey, presto, it very quietly gets shunted to November and everything gets moved around, which... They must have known beforehand, Rose, they can't be that stupid to have ever thought they were going to hold this thing in the height of summer in Qatar. And, you know, the world of politics and geopolitics is heating up significantly. You've got insurrection, uh, revolution all around the world. in Sri Lanka, Albania today, Holland, everywhere. There are people rising up complaining about the fact that they're unable to feed their families and, and afford petrol for their cars. And that is a terrible backdrop to go into a place like Qatar with all the problems they've had That's with kind of migrant point, workers mate. and how they've been how they've been treated and building the stadiums and stuff. You're right; it's a potential minefield. And on the one hand, they better hope that the football is spectacular because that's the only chance they've got of deflecting uh, attention from what's going on around it. Frankly, and, and even if the football is spectacular, the potential for crowd trouble in a place like Qatar where the tolerance is going to be much lower than football fans are used to, there are so many potential pitfalls for this World Cup, Rog. It's tough to see a way to walk along that sharper knife edge without cutting your foot. Yeah, I agree with you. But listen, let's lighten the mood a little bit, but come back to court cases and sport because um, (laughs) that's where the fun is for me. Did you see Vince McMahon? Did you see Vince McMahon's court case? No, no, I didn't. Right. Uh, let me put this in a little bit of context. The WWE, I know that's your favourite sports uh, rights holder. Yeah, oh yeah. I know it is, huge right? fan. Huge it's, fan. Um, but it is a listed company. And before I go into the story, this has been running in the Wall Street Journal for a few months. And it's quite a dramatic story. But I want to say that the share price of WWE has probably gone up about a quarter in the same time. So just bear that in mind that people are thinking the WWE is actually in a better position than it was six months ago when you hear this. So the Wall Street Journal broke the second part of this story (laughs) this week, which was to say that Vince McMahon, who is the owner, founder, chief executive of the WWE, He owns all the shares. He's got all voting shares, Class B shares. That means he has got complete control over the board. It's come to light that he paid $12 million over the past 16 years to suppress allegations of sexual misconduct and infidelity. Have you heard this story, Grant? I I heard the accusations. I didn't realise the court case. No, but the the juice is in the detail, man. You've got to let me read this. We've been serious so far on this podcast. The payouts went to four women, all all formally affiliated with WWE. Uh, The previous unreported settlements include a a $7.5 million 
settlement with a former wrestler who alleged that Mr. McMahon coerced her into giving him oral sex and then he demoted her and ultimately sacked her when uh, she didn't want to do that again. Now, uh, I think that's a pretty open and shut case, but he's got previous on this. Another deal he was found of sending unsolicited nude photos of himself to another WWE contractor that was settled for a million. The journal also reported a three million hush pact uh, with a former WWE paralegal with whom he allegedly had an affair. The WWE board, the board, remember, he owns all the company grant. So the board yeah. is a sham, right? The board are investigating Mr. Vince Mahone's agreement with the former paralegal, but and it came to light that this paralegal also had an, a, an affair with WWE executive John Laurentitis, formerly known as the wrestler Johnny Ace. <laughs> Vince McMahon had promoted said Johnny Ace to the head of WWE talent relations. And these two are passing this poor paralegal between themselves and what is uh, said in the article are like some kind of toy. There's also a tanning salon episode in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And here's some of the funny stuff uh, from the article. The company's shows have featured executives, including Mr. McMahon, as characters who join in cartoonish violence, risky skits, and soap opera-like storylines about the inner workings of the WWE. Mr. McMahon plays a vengeful boss with an out-of-control libido. Now, they didn't need a fucking scriptwriter for that, did they? It's just the truth. <laughs> it's just the truth. You know, and uh, on and on and on, and there's this great line from one of the commentators, uh, research analyst Brandon Ross, the bar is going to be reasonably high to wrestle the business from family control. <laughs> he controls the whole fucking thing. <laughs> now, see, the serious point here, right? This is a really funny story. Great article. Well done, the Wall Street Journal. But the point is that some companies that have got a major strategic business plan based around WWE, and regular listeners will know I'm referring to Peacock, this is the company they've bet so much money on that is controlled by what seems to be a complete lunation. Well, Rog, it's interesting because there's a thread that runs through all the stories we've talked about, and it's actually a very interesting one, right? And it's it's something that people need to be aware of and pay attention to because it's easy to say, well, you know, this what used to fly doesn't fly anymore and it's it's all going to change and McMahon may have gotten away with this for a while but now it's all coming home to roost. And you start to question, okay, why is all this happening now? Why are all these people coming out of the woodwork now? Go back to Elon Musk. You know, a story broke recently about a payoff to a flight attendant on one of the SpaceX jets over sexual improprieties that Musk supposedly uh, committed with her at some point offering to exchange sexual favours for a horse. I think one of the things you're going to borrow a horse because she was into horse riding. We really but, are in Caligula you know, in the Senate, look, aren't we now? We are, but, but this is why it's so interesting, right? Because public mood is turning and the people who were once larger-than-life characters could get away with stuff because they were, you know, they had 
millions of followers and everyone just thought they were great and they were too big, too powerful to take down, you can see that changing. You can see people in the general public when the cost of living is so expensive, they're not as impressed by billionaires as they used to be. They're not as impressed by super rich people living these extraordinarily big lives and doing all the crazy things that they wish they could do. You know, how many people admire Kim Kardashian because of the life she lives? Well, a lot fewer of them will be admiring her now if she's still out flaunting her wealth and spending money on crazy stuff when they can't afford to buy cereal for their family. So there's a much bigger shift here in social mood that people need to, to recognise. And, and, you know, it's always the same. Places like sport are where these things first start happening, Rog. So, yes, they're funny stories to read in and of themselves, but they portend a much darker shift in terms of what will be tolerated and what won't be tolerated. And again, you know, if you are of a mind, as you've kind of pointed out over the length of this podcast, that everything's entertainment these days and it's all about characters and story, that could be a problem because the stories have been all about excess and wealth and bling and living your best life and, you know, the amazing house and all the flash cars. That's no longer going to fly, Rog, when people are storming the presidential palace in places like Sri Lanka because they can't eat. Yeah, so I didn't, yeah. The, 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 the idea that sport as a narrative, you can build up these Logan Pauls and have them light money on fire and everyone's going to want to watch them box... You watch how fast that changes. Well, that will is, change very, very fast. Sure. And this is the Actually, tip of the spear. Logan Paul has joined the WWE. You won't know that, but he made an amazing uh, debut, <laughs> debut at WWE. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, how his character, he wants to be one of the good guys as opposed to one of the, you know, the, the, the villains of the narrative. You have got a higher opinion of the general public than I do, Grant. I think at the end of the day, they. I'm not sure they will link the fact that they can't pay to put petrol in their car with the fact that the Kardashians are doing something bizarre on TV and they look super rich. I, I don't think they're necessarily bright enough to link the two and say this world isn't fair. Well, um, we'll see. I, I fear we'll see, Rog. Um, I don't know. I, th- I, think you're, I think you're wrong on this one, but... Time will tell. Well, actually, um, just I'm just thinking about something. Um, yeah, I think I'll tell this story. I don't think I've told you this before. When I was at Virgin Music, we had an incident like this, like a bit Vince McMahon. Uh, the context is everything. So I had just been appointed by EMI PLC to be the the kind of like the serious person that was going to join Virgin in Italy and kind of like get it on its feet. And they'd employed the, the CEO from BMG Italy. Uh, and we didn't know each other. And we'd both kind of like met on the first day. And one of the first things we had to do was kind of like clean up the shambles that was the company there. And if you can use this phrase, a lot of the dead weight that you shouldn't have been in a, in a music record label. So well, the, the, the first couple of months that we were there, we had to get rid of people and there was this girl that uh, we had to get rid of because it's a silly Italian law that if your company's more than a certain number you've got legs flexibility and you're hiring and firing so we couldn't hire people until we got rid of others so that we didn't go above this number and this girl was simply a pure victim and we were planning how to do this appropriately 
and professionally and everything like that. And I'd spent the last nine months in Italy working for Alan Sugar, pretty much doing the same thing, cleaning up the shambles that was his Italian operation. And I'd spent most of the time in the employment courts trying to get people sacked. And they deserved it in Amstrad. This girl didn't. So I spent a whole load of time saying to this guy, look, this is how we need to do it. This isn't nice. Uh, this is the procedure. The Italian courts are very left-wing and they will always support the employee, so we need to do it. And we ended up typing up all the letters ourselves because we didn't want anybody else in the company to do it. Neither of us knew how to use a, a typewriter. There were still typewriters in those days. So a whole day preparing this and, you know, I left him about seven o'clock that night and he was going to meet this girl. And this was before the time of mobile phones and internet and means of communication. So I said, I'll see you in the morning. I see him in the morning. I say, how did it go? He said, it went well. I ended up sleeping with her. And he saw from my speechless reaction, my utter horror at this. And, and he said, uh, no, 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 you don't understand. It went really well. I said, it didn't go well. Oh if she, and, and he said, no. I said to her, I, took her, I said this line, I said, look, you know, what's your passion in life? And she had some strange passion, origami or something like that. He says, look, you know, this job is taking you away for your passion. I'm going to try and help you find the right thing for you to express what you want to do in life. You're wasting your time here. And apparently, to use his words, they bonded. And then, then they spent the night together. And I, I said to him, I said, you're out of your fucking mind. If she decides to take this the other way, as she probably should, we're going to lose. And we're going to lose huge. <laughs> we're going to lose huge. We've not got a leg to stand on. He said, don't worry, I, I, I bonded with her. It's going to be fine. And of course, you will ask Grant, oh, how did it end up? It was fine. And, and, and you know, this is a story for <laughs> oh, another God. day with this guy. I've told you various examples of this guy, but this guy was one of the most human, empathetic, and man-manager people I have ever seen. But <laughs> if that had been in America, and even in, because we were high profile, it was the music business. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we yeah. would have lost huge, huge. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable, Roger. Well, uh, yeah, D different time, different place, that was for sure. Yeah, well, that was uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll. That was the music industry. You know how much I love that. Uh, but, yes, you know, I that do. girl went on and she did get into another job and she did extremely well. We remained friends. Became, let, let me guess, became the World Origami Champion, 2004. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to remember that much detail because there were just, as I say, a lot of stories at that time. Uh, when, when you come to Como, we might get into some of them, but... Um, that was one I just remembered, you know, like yes, <laughs> Vince McMahon and the tanning <laughs> booth in back. Oh my lord! Well, right, Roger, I tell you what, let, let's um, let's let's pivot a little bit to proper sport and, and none of the kind of stuff around it. Let's talk a little bit about the Wimbledon men's yes. singles final, which has concluded a couple of hours ago. Um, I really enjoyed it. Curios is a fascinating character to me. I found myself rooting for and against him at various different points in the final. You know, I think Djokovic gets a bad rap. I think Djokovic is a phenomenal athlete, a great tennis player, and I don't think he's the bad guy he's been portrayed to be. He just happens to be alongside Federer, who's the nicest guy in the world, and Nadal, who's probably the second nicest guy in the world. 
But what, what did you make of the final, Roger? I thought the tennis was excellent. I thought Kyrgios probably beat himself, but that was probably always going to happen. What, what did you make of it all? Well, I didn't see the first two and a half sets because I was watching the Grand Prix. Now, that maybe that's a comment in itself about what I feel about the product market mm-hmm. fit for about tennis, but I'm not going to go into that. We've, been, we've said a lot about that recently. This Australian guy, you know how much I love all this nonsense and what the kids call beef and the memes. The memes were glorious today. But I actually felt quite sorry for this guy. I, I think he's ill, Grant. You know, like, there's no way that you can be speaking and shouting to yourself and to your family and friends like that and not be ill, in my opinion. This is the kind of guy you see if you go into the asylums they think they're Bodicea or fucking Napoleon or something like that. This guy's got a problem, Grant. There's no two ways about it. You know, the other thing I noticed, he must be incredibly well, I mean, incredibly talented because he doesn't move his feet and he doesn't bend his knees. I mean, it's just fucking arms. You know, like, <laughs> how do you get to a Wimbledon final and not know the basics about how to move your feet uh, to hit the ball? And so, so the guy is clearly a character... And I said what I said, um, you know, Andrew Croker episode, you know, I think in a lot of ways he saved Wimbledon this year because it was truly awful. But in the same way, he didn't do it any favours because whilst I'm all for innovation, I don't think what he brought to a Wimbledon final today is what Wimbledon deserves. You can't have a nut job like that, screaming like that, in front of the royal box. I'm sorry, you can be the, all the innovator you want, but that's not on for me. So I, I agree with you. I don't like Djokovic. I didn't want him to win, but it was right that he won Grant. Yeah, no, I, I think I'd agree with all that, Rog. It's, um, I say I, I was rooting for Kyrgios because he was the underdog, and I found in the first set his tennis was fabulous. It was just great to I see, see him. I didn't see that. You know, hitting the ball between his legs and underarm serves and all the stuff he was oh, doing. Oh, he did all that, did he? Oh, yeah, to, to unsettle Djokovic. And he played great tennis. His serve is unbelievable. And you kind of said, you know, good for you, son. You know, he won the first set and it was, you know, he's let's go and it was all great. And then, you know, Djokovic, as he does whenever you watch him play, he, he's unbelievable. He's just remorseless. He's, he's an incredible competitor, incredible athlete. He, he came back in um, the last three rounds. Yeah. Every time. He did. And, and just watching Kyrgios melt down and not just, the fact that he melted down and, you know, he, he just, but just his attitude and, as you say, the screaming at his family and the umpire and all that. And, and he did I, come and up with right. the greatest line of the two weeks. Go on. <laughs> you see when the, he was speaking to the umpire about... Oh, yes, was, with, about the, the woman in the, who looked like looks she had 700 drinks, bro. she had 700 drinks. If, if, if it had been yeah. a man, I would have tweeted, no, no, that was Giles Morgan you're thinking of me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's um, yeah. Look, it's, I, th- I think the overarching thing for me, Rog, watching it was, you know, tennis has has had just this golden era. You know, between them, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer have won almost sixteen years worth of majors. They've basically won every major for for a total of sixteen years between them, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And you know, one by one in the next two or three years probably, we're going to have to say goodbye to them. And there are, there are some talented tennis players coming up. But to your point about 
Wimbledon being a showpiece, um, the state of men's tennis, the state of women's tennis, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next because, uh, again, I think women's tennis is struggling with Serena going. There's no real That's airs to that front. That's pretty um, mildly. Yeah, absolutely. And I um, saw, I saw, you know, they show you, uh, you know, the run to the final of the two players yesterday. I could yep. not recognise one name, including both of the finalists. Now, that's never happened to me. I've always been able to name top half a dozen women's tennis players. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah. No, it's um, it's 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 definitely a problem. Uh, more so you know, the thing, the, thing, the thing I wanted to say, the reason I didn't see the first couple of sets was was obviously the Formula One, and that was this was going to be my goal coming into this show. I don't think Charles Leclerc is getting enough credit for the absolute level of excellence he's bringing every weekend or every fortnight, you know, across the, the qualifications. Spoken like a true Ferrari fan, my friend. No, 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 no. I mean, it's not even... No, it's not that because Ferrari has screwed him, Grant. They let him down with the strategies many times. A couple of times he was coasting to victory and the, and the engine blew up. This isn't, you know, isn't Ferrari great. This is the reason I want to say it. I think this young man, and, you know, you won't have seen it today, but he finished the race, the last five laps, with Max up his oh, so backside. No throttle then. He had, he had with throttle a throttle. Problems, right? I mean, that's Jim Clark stuff. Anybody that knows motor racing knows that Jim Clark did that on a few occasions. And, you know, that young lad, Charles, okay, he's fine. You know, him and Verstappen, are going to be an amazing rivalry. And um, he, he doesn't get enough credit, that, that young lad. He's been magnificent this year. I didn't, you know, it's funny, it was one of my own goals this week was going to be in Formula One. And that is um, watching the Silverstone Grand Prix last week, which was absolutely fantastic. Just proper old school racing. Yeah, I'm not sure if you saw that, but yeah. yeah, he did, he did. But, but let's put that aside, <laughs> Ferrari boy. It was fantastic racing. And you know, my own goal was Monaco. Why don't they just get rid of the Monaco Grand Prix? It's such a waste of time. And, and it encapsulates all the stuff we were talking about. It's not a race. It's all about the parties and the bling and the stars. No, that's and all surprising. That's stuff a surprising thing for you to say. But it's awful. It, when was the last exciting Monaco Grand Prix you saw? Really? But that's, I mean, you know, it, it's that's, just a procession. I, listen, I agree I, with you. I, um, and I have to say there's a couple in the news circuits in the Middle East that don't allow a lot of passing either and they're relatively um, uninteresting. But Monaco is the crown jewel, Grant. You know, it's what... No, but, but why, Rog? But why? Uh, it's not tradition. the race. It's what, that's why I'm saying I'm surprised you say that. It's because the it's, one not, you, it's not you, the you race. To win. You know, Monaco is the one you need to win. Um, and well, just Croker. get pole position. There you go. Just get pole position and make sure your car doesn't uh, listen, break down. There you go. Listen, That's you how you know, win, you, Monica. You, you know I'm all for you know putting sacred cows on the table. No, uh, no, not 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 on that. No, not on Monaco. But Raj, it, it's the it's the crown jewel because of the glamour. Yeah, it was always the glamorous Absolutely. Grand Prix back in the day. It's, Absolutely, it's, it's nothing to do with the racing. It's nothing to do with the the, the driving. It's just it's just awful. Uh, every, I, I mean, I never watch it. It's just rubbish. Yeah, well, listen, I hear you. I think. Um, you know, Formula One has got a couple of issues. Um, some of them are the circuits. Haven't heard MDC Monaco before, and it's surprised to come from you. But I don't think you're wrong in, in putting that on the table. I think the a, a few of the races can become a procession. 
And it's quite sad. It's always quite sad when you see commentators and people saying, well, let's hope there's a crash because the safety car will give us all that <laughs> excitement again. Right. You know, there's something I've got from you, from not from Formula One, Grant, but I thought of you here. Do you know Formula E? Do you know uh, yeah. what that is? Yeah. Right. Well, actually, that should have been much more successful than it has been. I know a few I people agree. from Formula E, but it's just not worked. And that's a shame because they've got this amazing, amazing gimmick that's about fan engagement. You know, fan engagement in sport, it's words, it's a box to tick. It's, you know, we'll let you design the fourth strip of Newcastle and, you know, we'll get, you know, you'll be... All this stuff that was also linked to NFTs about utility, it's called fan engagement, but it's all fake. This one, this one's great. Formula E's got something called fan boost, which means that during a race, the community of fans can vote and the volume of that vote increases the turbo output of a certain driver's engine, the one you voted for. <laughs> so, so it's Super Mario Kart, is what you're telling me. Can you imagine, Grant, you know, like some poor guy that's driven the weekend of his life, he's going really, really well, and he's just in the fucking zone, and, you know, fan boost... <laughs> Some loser in the back of the grid. Everybody like Wall Street bets decides to say, let's just boost this guy. <laughs> he starts, the thing starts going like a rocket. <laughs> but Rog, this is precisely the danger of all the stuff you champion. I, I know you about would sport, love this. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. And it's just this is it. You just make a mockery. It's not sport. It's just insane, which is which is fine. But you wonder why Formula E is less successful than you thought it would be, it's stuff like this. It's You make it too gimmicky, and sports fans want sport. They want competition, genuine competition. They want to be able to root it is for an someone, interesting that one, just Grant. makes a mockery of it. Listen, anybody from Formula E, I think there's a few people that listen to us, very welcome to hear your um, views on Fan Boost and, as we are saying, why Formula E hasn't been more successful than it should have been given the whole climate change and the way the world's going. Uh, for me, it's a little bit of a mystery. So um, let us know, and we'll certainly either bring you on or give your, your views a, a full airing. I've got one last thing for you, Grant. I want your view on this, because I never saw this story. Uh, the British Open will be on by the time this goes out on Thursday. It'll be the first day. What is your view about the Open's decision to allow the live players to compete? You know my, my view about the majors being everything now. How how did that decision come about, and how do you read it? No, look, I think I think they followed the precedent set by the US Open, Rog, and they, I, I think, quite rightly said, if you qualified, you qualified. So I, I saw you tweeted out next year. Ned, um, how does it work next year? Well, it, well, that that's when the test comes next year. Next year is when the test comes, right? Because Greg Norman is going to be lobbying the RNA to keep that policy in place, and the Open is the Open, and. Everyone should be allowed to try and qualify for it, whether it's US or British Open, the Open Championship, I should say. Um, and the tours are going to be saying, kick the bums out. And obviously next year, there will be less ranking points available for the people on the Live Tour, so they're going to drop down the rankings and may not qualify anyway. But it's interesting, Rog, you know, this is the 150th Open at St Andrews, and there's a big celebration of that. And they've basically invited all the living champions back to play a four-hole match and a big dinner and I think the only two absentees are Phil Mickelson who is in the field but declined to attend either event 
and Greg Norman, who the RNA came out and quite bluntly said, we didn't invite him. And the reason they didn't invite him, because was they said, is, you know, this is a big year for us and it would be a distraction to have Greg there and all the circus that he brings, basically. So we just, we didn't invite him to either. But the invited Phil, the invited Phil. Well, he's in the field, so he's he's there to play anyway, right? But this dinner, I guess, is only for ex-champions or something like that. Ex-champions. And he, look, he and he, I'm sure they had a conversation with him and he said, yeah, I won't play. I'm sure they didn't get lucky. They invited him to play in it and he said, oh, actually, I won't bother. I'm sure there was a conversation and he's agreed that he won't want to play in it. If you yeah, it's like trip. when they want to offer you an OBE, um, they ask you if you're going to accept yeah. it first. Exactly right. So, look, I think what they've done this year is absolutely right in saying if you'd already qualified, you're in. We're not going to change the rules on you, which is exactly what the US Open said. That was their precedent. Next year is when it matters. We'll see what happens next year. And I think all the majors will be forced to have a policy. For the Masters, it's obviously much easier. It's a closed tournament. They can pretty much do whatever they want. It's an invitational. So it's very easy for them. And they're obviously going to be the first major played next year. So we'll we'll get a sense from them of what they're doing. And they have a habit of doing the classy thing well with the Masters, so that will definitely set a precedent. But I don't think it means anything what the what the RNA have done with regards to this Open okay. because the players are already qualified. But, but let, let me ask you, in terms of qualification for the Open, i.e. the British Open for, let's call it the Open, if I'm not wrong... You and I could go through the qualifying rounds to see if we can get into the the open. There are a whole lot of qualifying rounds that have nothing to do with points that you've accumulated during the year. So correct. So let's assume they take a decision that we're not going to uh, automatically let in the live players. Would that not be rather embarrassing if Brooks Kepka and Bryson went to all the courses around that are the qualifying and got into the open anyway, which they would obviously? Would that not be quite embarrassing for the RNA? Possibly, Rog. Possibly. I mean, look, it remains to be seen. What they, they, look, this is same in the US Open. Open. Same in the US. You can well, qualify think, from the ground I think up. I'm right in saying the US Open. You've got to have a handicap of. Four or lower, I think. So it's not. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, but if, they if all the qualify. They're, the they're no, no, no. Of course they I'm, I'm just. I'm, I just. I didn't want to dash your hopes of getting in. That's all. I was worried about <laughs> you more than anything else. Um, but, but look, this this live golf has presented problematic choices for everybody at every turn, and that's not going to go away for the foreseeable future, right? So, they're all going to be faced with. You know, Dan, if you do, Dan, if you don't, choices. But I think there will be, particularly with the Open Championship and the US Open, the overarching thrust will be to protect the integrity of the game, not the players. So they will decide what they think is in the best interest of the game and that will be how they make their decisions. They're not going to be worried about the players and who they might upset and who they might offend and who they might knock out. They might think that for the purity of the game, these guys should be allowed to compete. But that's, I think that's what they'll be making their decision based on. Well, if it was me, uh, um, and I'm thinking about being an ex-sports administrator here, the political thing, as you said before, and it's always politics, you would go to them, I'm talking about the US Open, British Open as well, you'd go to them and say, look, I'm going to stick to ranking points 
for you to get in and you don't have enough. I, and maybe they do, and I don't know, but let's assume they haven't played enough events. So I'm going to ask you to go through the qualifying rounds. And I would say, look, you will get through them. This is going to be a win-win because um, nobody gives a shit about the qualifying rounds up until today. But guess what? They will now when all you guys are playing at Presswick and, you know, uh, all, all these little courses around the, the big ones. So we'll actually make a thing of it that you're actually going to have to qualify. It'll be a little bit like Kevin Costner and Tin Cup. You know what I mean? Yeah, but look, they, Raj, that already happens, right? There are there are always a bunch of big-name golfers that aren't qualified for Opens and US Opens, and they play in final qualifying. It happens every year. I didn't know that. Right? So, it can't be that yeah, big. Yeah, it names. happens every year. There, there's, always, there's always guys that had a rough year last year, didn't qualify or whatever, and you know, you'll see people like Lee Westwood, pre-live, playing qualifying rounds to get into the Open at the last minute to get one of the qualifying spots. So, so it's, it's not new. It'll be new if you've got you know, some of the top 10 players in the world doing it, for sure. <laughs> but it's not like, oh, my God, there's a pro golfer in the in the qualifying tournaments. That happens okay, every year. Okay, but what I'm saying is there's media value in that event. It, the, the qualifying's now becomes an opportunity to monetize. I'm, t- I'm just thinking right. of how I would think no, no, if no, I was no, running yeah, the R&A. You're, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And and the if the if the listeners could see your cynical smile... <laughs> <laughs> this is, this like is free am. consultancy, man. But you're, no, Take you're right. a problem no, no, and make it right. an opportunity. You are absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, that would work. But, um, mate, it remains to be seen. It, it, I, I don't think the Live Golf story is this year's story. It's next year's story. I think next year's story is that there's no tours. It just needs another two or three and the seesaw tips. And then what I think happens with the tours, again, being the old sports administrator guy, I remember, um, you know, when Rangers went bust, I wasn't there, but obviously I was close to it. Barney Francis at Sky uh, is on the phone saying, this is not what I bought in terms of rights. I'm wondering how long it is and how many big names need to go from that tour before their media partners and their sponsors say, this isn't what I signed up for. So um, bye-bye. That's that's how it ends. Roger, it's a very valid point. It's a very valid point. And had this have happened, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and they managed to get Tiger and Phil... Different story. But today, there are a lot of good young players, right? You look at that Ryder Cup team, both sides. There's 24 world-class players on both sides. And they've got probably half a dozen of them. But since then, there have been a whole bunch more coming through. I think golf is in rude health right now. And a lot of these young players are not just great players, but they, you know, they're, they're media savvy and they're, you know, they're adept at social oh, media no, and stuff. That. So I, I, I know. So I think... I think you're right, but but if it is a numbers game, I think the tipping point is further away now than it has been for some time. No, but yeah, but I'm I'm asking you to join the dots. You said before, sports in trouble, and the money's not fluid, a recession coming, less subscribers paying for all these peacock things and everything like that. So you're sitting in a media company and you've done a lot of deals that don't look so smart a year later that interest rates have started rising and everything like that. What do you do? You use any excuse you can to get out of a media contract. Yeah, 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 no, look, maybe you do. And maybe the solution is you renegotiate your contract with the PGA Tour and you get your rights 
for less, maybe. I don't know. No, oh, you but would certainly think... get them for less, but there'll be a lot of caveats around that contract grant. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I will bid you no, this. No, if him, 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 and him are in your tour, the day they yep. aren't, I have got a walkaway clause. That's yep. that's the next nine months, in my opinion, for what happens to those sitting at the centre of the tours. A world like this. Yeah, uh, look, Roger, I, I don't think that is beyond the realms of possibility at all. At all. And it remains to see how they handle it. But, um, you know, the PGA Tour have got an awful lot of economics they could potentially give up here to compromise if they want to. You know, they may be arrogant enough to think we don't need to, but I think that would be wrong. Put it this way, if Live Golf had been backed by someone other than the Saudis, if it had been backed by JP McManus, right, for example, <laughs> you saw his yeah. prime, you saw who showed up for his prime, right? Yeah. If it had been backed by less controversial money, different story altogether. I think it's. I, I think the, the problem live. I think the problem live have is twofold. It's Saudi Arabia and it's Greg Norman. Thank you. They're the two problems they have. Yeah. All right, matey. I think we've uh, been uh, quite over the hour on this, but obviously it's always a, a delight to be speaking with we you and done. catch up. Um, we have done indeed. Indeed. Well, the hour has flown by, Rog. It's flown by. So. Um, I guess we should probably wrap it we up, should. which, which means should. that we should we should thank the listeners for sticking with us while we ramble on. Please do follow us on Twitter if you don't already. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You can find me on Twitter at T-T-M-Y-G-H. You can find me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Rog, I will see you soon, my friend. Take thank care. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. Take care.